Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Oxford Baptist Church with our pastor, Andy Brown. We pray you'll be blessed as you apply these truths to your life. Let's pray together this morning. Father, there's one thing that we don't want to do at a moment like this. And that is to simply go through some motion. Instead, Lord God, we desire the faith that you've given us to touch the very depths of our souls. So that, Lord God, we will learn what it means when we say we believe. So, Father, that's quite a task before us today. Because we know that there are many things that try to trip us into unbelief. So, Father, as we come to this time to shore up our faith, Father, we do so through the ministry of Your Word. That's Spirit-inspired. As you take your truths from your word, that's sharper than any two-edged sword, that will go forth and accomplish whatever purpose you have for it, as we come and place ourselves under your authority, asking you in these moments to conform us to the image of Christ. And Father, we pray these things, trusting you in his name. Amen. I want to ask you this morning, I want you to consider something with me. The most important question that you could ever ask of your life. That's pretty daunting, right? The most important question that you could ask your entire life is how can I be made right with God? Now think about that question just for a minute. How can I be made right with God? And let's be honest, there's Many presuppositions that undergird such a question. If you ask such a question, there's a lot of things that are undergirding. And the base of that, like, for example, there's an acknowledgement of God. And that our desire is to be in right relationship with Him. If we're asking such a question, then we're acknowledging God. And we're acknowledging that we have a desire to be right with Him. And second... A person who dares to ask such a question acknowledges that they are not right with God. So, after all of those presuppositions have been covered, then we come back to the question. How on earth can I be made right with God? And what on earth is the answer? Well, I'm glad that we're considering that question this morning and Really, that question, that one solitary question is the spark that led to what we've been celebrating here for the past month. That question was the spark that led to the Protestant Reformation. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Here I am, a gospel preacher who preaches peace in Jesus' name, and we're celebrating a protest. It's not the Baptist uh, Reformation, although some may say... You've never been in a Baptist church. You've never known a fight. Some may say something different anyway. But we're talking about protest. We're celebrating protest here at Oxford. And why are we celebrating protest? Because of the question, what on earth can I do to be made right with God? That's something worth fighting for. Answering that question is a matter of eternity. And I can't think of any question that should have more of our attention than to make sure we know the answer to that question without any doubt or without any fear. Now, we're coming up on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. 
Of course, that Reformation was led by a few names. Maybe you've heard of them. Luther, Calvin, Knox, Wycliffe, Tyndale, Zwingli, and we could go down the list and talk about so many others. But we're discovering what they sought to reform was the answer to that question that I proposed to you several times now. How can I be made right with God? And so they came to that and they wanted to know what was the answer. But more importantly, where did they find the answer? They went back and wanted to know what Genesis said about that question. What Matthew said about that question. What did Leviticus say about that question? In other words, what does the Bible, what is Romans, what's this book right here say is the answer to the question, how can I be made right with God? And so let's think about it this morning. Are we made right with God through sacrament? That is, maybe through baptism or the Lord's Supper or church membership. Is that how we're made right with God? If I just, you know, join a church or maybe I go into the waters of baptism or maybe I, you know, take the Lord's Supper every week or every month, whatever we do. Is that how we're made right with God? Or or maybe it's through good works. Maybe that's how we're made right with God. Is it through, you know, stuff like uh, love and pursuing peace and unity and Maybe something like neighborliness. If I'm just a good neighbor, then, well, God's going to look favorably upon me. Or what about this guy over here that is uh, standing on the street corner asking for a, a, a little money because he's down on his luck? You know, if I give him a gift, whatever's in my wallet, is the meter for me going to turn a little bit to show that, hey, I've done a little good deed so that now I've got one more click in the right direction of being made right with God? Is that how we're made right with God. Or or maybe it's through something like devotion. Maybe if we just read our Bible just a little more, then we'll be made right with God. Maybe if we just pray a little longer, then we'll be made right with God. Maybe if we actually go out and share our faith and witness, maybe that's how we made right with God. Or, Or how about this? Or is it something else? Sacrament, devotion, good works? Or is it something else? Is there another way that you and I are made right with God? The answer that the Bible gives is simple. And I'm going to do my diligence this morning in the time that we have not to overcomplicate things because it's not complicated. Here's what the Bible says. Are you ready? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know what that means? Faith alone. We are made right. That is, we are justified before God, declared righteous before God by faith alone. Now, we've been looking at these solas, these five alones, these five onlys, and we've been discovering that these are the way of summarizing the gospel of grace. And so let me tell you this morning, we're on the fourth sola. Let me give you a definition of what I mean and what the Bible means when it says faith alone. Listen, it's going to be up here on the screen so you can read along with me. Faith alone means that a right standing with God, and that is that word justification. Don't be afraid by those $4 words, 50 cent words. Don't be afraid of those things. Justification, that is our right standing with God, comes not as a result of one's own righteousness, but from a righteousness freely given to us by Christ. In other words, there's nothing you can do to earn a right standing with God. The only thing that you can do to earn a right standing with God is place all of your faith, all of your trust in 
Jesus Christ. Now we've been looking at the five solas here and remember just for a moment our definition of the five solas and that is, let me go over it again with you, that is salvation, our only hope in life and death according to scripture is through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to God's glory alone. Now go back to that definition just a minute. Go back to the fourth sola. You see it up there? The fourth sola. In it you hear everything that comes before it. Go back to the, uh, yeah, that's it, uh, faith alone. Look at that. You hear everything that comes before it. You hear Christ. You hear grace. And now we consider faith. And listen to me carefully. It's all grounded in God's Word, all leading to a place. And the place that we're leading to, which is why I encourage you to come next week and bring your friends, because this is the the final Sola Series sermon, is going to be next week. And it's all leading to this, God's glory alone. So you see Christ, grace, all grounded in Scripture, all leading to God's glory. And it's all so that we can understand, a, so that we can have a picture of the gospel of grace. All to answer the question, how can I be made right with God? Now let me ask you a question. Can you think of any other question more important than the question of eternity? Where will you spend eternity? And how do you know? Do you have any confidence when you consider such a question? Now, it's one thing for you to have confidence. What about your neighbor? What about your son or daughter or mother or dad, grandmother? Do they have confidence? Could they answer the question, how are they made right with God. You see, I hope that what we're discovering is our definition of the gospel is not some ethereal out there, out yonder, just something that we just sort of believe every now and then. This question is very personal. The gospel doesn't simply impact one one part of your life. The gospel touches every part of your life. There was a pastor in the 1600s. Anybody know anybody from the 1600s? All right, I'm going to let you introduce you to somebody. His name was Francis Turretin. He said something like this that helps us see why faith alone matters. Listen to what he says. He says, When we rise to the heavenly tribunal and place before our eyes that supreme judge by whose brightness the stars are darkened, at whose strength the mountains melt, by whose anger the earth is shaken, whose justice not even the angels are equal to bear, who does not make the guilt innocent, whose vengeance when once kindled penetrates even the lowest depths of hell. So Turretin says, when you're before him, then in an instant... The vain confidence of men perishes. And all falls and conscience is compelled to confess that it has nothing upon which it can rely before God. And so it cries out with David, Lord, if thou marked iniquity, who can stand? When the mind is thoroughly 
terrified with the consciousness of sin and a sense of God's wrath. What is that thing on account of which he may be acquitted before God and be reckoned a righteous person? What is that thing by which he can be acquitted before God and reckoned a righteous person? Is it a righteousness inhering in us and in court holiness? Or the righteousness and obedience of Christ alone imputed to us? Or is it a righteousness of Christ alone? In other words, Turretin is saying, here's what he's saying, one day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God. One day you're going to be before Him. And you say, I don't believe that. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's appointed for a man wants to die. And then after this comes the judgment. And on that final day, or maybe it's that first day, maybe that's a better way of thinking about it. On that day, what hope will you have on that day? Your own righteousness, your own life, I did this, I did that. Or will you just simply say, faith alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Faith alone. Now, faith alone is one of those kind of things where it's an important doctrine, and it's also one that's so easily misunderstood. So here's the question before us today. What do we mean when we say that we are justified, that we are made right with God by faith alone? Now, remember this. This is important because we're committed to the authority of Scripture, not the doctrines of men. The Protestant Reformation sought to take the church back to the Bible. This is the reason that we're even celebrating such a thing, because the church is always in Reformation. Even though it's 500 years that this happened, we're constantly in Reformation. I was just talking to a guy this morning, and he was letting me know about one of his loved ones who basically denies the doctrine of hell, denies that, you know, Christ is all-sufficient in salvation, and he says he believes the Bible. So we have to understand that the church is always in Reformation. We're always, this is the reason that the preacher preaches the way that he preaches. He asks you to open the Bible, and I'm going to do that in just a minute to show you these things, because I want to show you that these truths are not just truths that I have amassed in my own opinion. These truths are truths that we take right from Scripture. And so the Protestant Reformation sought to take the church back to the Bible. These five solas are not imposed on the text, but they're truths that rise from the text. Take, for example, just a key text, and Mr. Johnny read this morning some of them, but another one is Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Listen to it. It's pretty clear. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So just look at that verse just for a minute. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. How on earth are we justified? What's the verse say? It gives one word answer. By faith. Do you see that? It's not me making something up, trying to persuade you of something. It's what the Bible says. We have been justified by what? Say it with me. Faith. Very good. So what do we mean then when we say faith? Now that's the question, isn't it? We see faith. What do you mean, Pastor? What's the Bible mean when it says faith? And the reason I want to labor so much on this is because there's a lot of confusion about what we mean when we say faith. And because we're committed to the authority of Scripture at Oxford, I want to show you how these truths of the Reformation rise from the text. And it's not my ideas imposing on Scripture. It's 
the text itself. So take your Bible with me, and please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, we read this passage last week, and this is sort of part of my commitment to you to make sure that you understand that I'm not just proof-texting or taking passages from one place and stretching it out to mean something. I want to show you how this began really at the beginning of our first study when we looked at Second Peter. I began to ask the question, if these five solas are so important, can they be drawn from the writings of Peter? And you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I can't get past First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And so that's where we're going to be this morning. And now, if you remember, I read the whole thing last week to you, 3 through 12, and we only concentrated on 3 through 5. And so this time, I want to concentrate on 6 through 9. And, well, you can go ahead and guess what's coming next week. Well, the rest of it, 10 through 12. Because I want to show you the whole from the parts. I want to show you how we understand these doctrines of faith alone from the writings of Peter. Now, You have to understand something about Peter. Peter is written to a group of people that he calls, look at verse 1 in 1 Peter, he calls them elect exiles. Now that's strange, isn't it? He's talking to believers. Believers, and he calls them elect, which is a mode of comfort, and then he calls them exiles, which is not so comfortable. It's okay to be chosen. It's not okay to be chosen to be exiled. No one wants that. You see that dual dynamic that he's already forcing upon them. You are elect, but you're also exiled. And so what does this mean? It means that he's writing to a group of believers who are not at home in the world. And I wonder if it's how we understand our stint or stay on the earth. Are we strangers and sojourners who are looking for a city whose builder is God? We are faith-filled people who are right now longing for more. And I wonder if that describes you. Are you right now a man or a woman of faith? Are you longing for more? Now let's ask the question. Okay, great. What's the substance of your faith? Or what kind of faith? Is it a faith that pleases yourself, or is it a faith that pleases God? Or are those two things the same? Is what pleases God what pleases you? What's the substance of your faith? Now, let's read the text. Like I said, even though we're going to focus today on 6 through 9, I want to read 3 through 12 because it represents one thought for Peter. And in the original, in the Greek, it's one long sentence. So don't tell your grammar teacher She'll get upset. Don't write sentences that long. But anyway, Peter did. He didn't have your grammar teacher. So let's read, beginning in verse 3, we'll go through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though for now, a little while, it's necessary that you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, from First Peter, I want us to learn together this wonderful truth of faith alone. And to do so, what I seek to do throughout this passage is define faith. If it is faith alone. If that's the way that we have a right standing before God. Listen, I hope we understand how important this is. If faith is the way that we have a right standing before God, then we best make sure that the kind of faith that we have is the right substance. So number one from the text. Number one, the source of our faith is God. Now let's look at verse 3. Look where we begin. Look at what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what? Pay attention. According to His great mercy, underscore this in your minds, in your Bibles, He has caused us to be born again. Now how on earth... Are you born again? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You say, well, how on earth do you believe? Well, look at the text. He causes us. In other words, God is the one who causes us to believe. Now, this is important for us because I hope you see what Peter's doing. This is important. Listen carefully to your pastor. Peter is grounding our faith in something external other than ourselves. It's important for anyone who's ever had any kind of doubt. This is important for anyone who has ever had moments of unbelief that results in making bad choices and and sin. The source of our faith is the unchanging God. That's why Peter goes and grounds our faith in what God's done. Not in how we feel or something we ascribe to. The source of our faith is God. So what is faith? Is faith feelings? Oh, I sure do hope not. Because sometimes, if we're honest, I feel terrible. Sometimes, there's some mornings that I, like this morning, I really don't feel like preaching. You can hear it in my voice. I don't, but you know what? You got to. Sometimes, I struggle to get excited about Jesus. Just honest. Sometimes, I don't feel like being excited. I have to force myself to be excited. And when I have those temporary or those fleeting moments where my faith is waning, then they have to ask the question, have I lost my faith? No. Why is that? Because of what the Bible says in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny who? Himself. Did you hear that? 
If we are faithless, He remains faithful. And what's that for? So that He cannot deny Himself. So here's the thing. Peter's grounding our belief in something external to ourselves. So here's my challenge to you. Don't trust your feelings. Instead, have faith in God. You see, the whole point of this whole justification by faith, the whole point of this faith alone is the goodness of the gospel of grace. The amazingness of grace. The fact that God has sought you. He has bought you. And He has made you His very own. You say, why did He do that? The best reason the Bible gives is because He chose to. That's it. Not because He knew that you were going to be the next Billy Graham or that you weren't going to be the next Billy Graham or whoever, Mother Teresa, whoever you want to say. God freely chose you because He just wanted to. That's the best we can do. That's the best the Bible gives us. You say, me? You might ask. Why on earth would God choose somebody like me? I have no idea, but I know that I can sure say and testify of His grace, I sure am glad that He did. You see, there are two truths of the gospel that at once are infinitely true. I like the way that Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor up in New York City, he used to be a pastor, he's retired now, but he pastored there a long time. Listen to what he says. Two of these truths are true at the same time. Listen, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me read that again. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we could ever dare hope. Look at verse 6, which is where we're looking at today. This verse can't be understood apart from what comes before it. Remember, it's just one long sentence. Look at the verse 6 there. Look how it begins. You see, sort of we're interrupting the sentence, and that's okay. Verse 6, look at it closely. In this, you rejoice. Do you see that? What are we rejoicing in? Well, look at verse 5. Look at it closely. We are rejoicing in the fact that God is guarding us by His power for salvation. Do you see that? Now, we're not rejoicing in the trials. We're rejoicing in the fact that we have an anchor for our souls in the midst of the trials. We don't fall down a step and say, oh man, I'm glad that's over with. No, no, no. We thank God that He enables us the strength to endure it. What are we rejoicing in? We are rejoicing in the fact that God is guarding us by His power for salvation. Now, how on earth is He guarding us? Well, look at the Bible. Through faith. Do you see that in verse 5? What does this mean? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God shields us from trouble or trials. That's what it doesn't mean. There's no prosperity gospel that, you know, if you just pray more, you'll get the Bentley. Or if you just pray more, you'll be able to be healed. This is me. I lost my cousin when he was 16 years old, thrown out of his windshield of his car. The car rolled over him and and killed him about three days later. We actually had someone come to our family and say, you know, if y'all prayed just a little more, then your uh, family member wouldn't have died. Listen carefully to me. This truth doesn't mean that he will shield us from troubles and trials. And I say that because I look at my uncle and 
and saw him for years be angry at God because that was the picture of God that he had. And thankfully, he's uh, attending First Baptist Church of Newton now and things are getting better with him. His soul is secure because of Christ. But for a long time, we wondered about my uncle. Often trials are used by God to grow our faith. God is the one who can take a trial and he can turn it to a testimony. God is the one who can take a trial and sometimes we know that our trials, maybe they're blessings in disguise. But he guards us by his power even in the midst of trials. Now, why on earth does he guard us by his power? Here's the reason. So that we won't fall away. Why does he guard us in the midst of trials? So that the difficulty that dashes our faith will not disintegrate our faith. Oh, there's difficulty. But the difficulty that you're going through is not going to disintegrate. Why is that? Because you have a God that's guarding you according to his power. And I wish I could tell you a little bit about his power this morning. But suffice it to say, as we sang this morning, the wind and seas, they still know his name. They still recognize his voice. Maybe you've heard a phrase. We sort of throw phrases around here because we know just a little bit about the Bible and, you know, it really sounds good. Maybe you've heard this phrase, God will not put more on you than you can handle. Have you ever said that to somebody or had anybody say that to you? Well, I think that the reason why we like that so much is just because it's partly right. We believe it, but yet we don't believe it because, you know, it's hard to come to someone whose child has cancer and say that to them. It doesn't really work well, does it? See, that idea is not meant to make you think that God is just passively throwing things at you. Listen carefully. He is actively guarding us and enabling us to trust in Him. If you don't have God, you can't handle it. But with God, all things are possible. You remember old Peter... Peter was the one who's writing the book. The book bears his name, First Peter. He says, Peter, that's how he begins in verse 1. Who's Peter? If you read your Bible, then you'll find out, if you don't know it already, Peter had a faith failure. Pretty big one. Jesus was facing the cross. He was telling the disciples that he was going to die. And Peter says, this is my paraphrase, he says, Oh, for my dead body, buddy, forget it. Jesus looked at Peter, and you remember what he said to Peter? He said, before the rooster crows, you will have already denied that you know me three times. But that's not all the story. Listen to it in Luke 22. Listen, listen in Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. Now, that's the conversation. Peter had a faith failure because we know what happens next. Peter, hey, do you know this guy? No, no, I've never seen him. Then don't you know that? And then Peter starts cussing. You know, he uses his Galilean dialect. Oh, no, no way I know this guy. Somebody asked him, Peter, aren't you that guy? No, no way. I don't know him as Jesus is there. And, but look at how the conversation in Luke 22 starts. Look at this. Satan demands to sift you. But then look at what Jesus says. The one who's already raised the dead 
The one who's already calmed the seas. The one who's already spoken and the demons obeyed him. Satan demands to sift you, Peter. But I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. Now let's ask a question. Did Peter's faith fail? Look at what Jesus says. When you return, strengthen your brothers. Now let's look at the long picture. Because that's what God's interested in. He's in your life and my life for the long game. Not just for the short game. Not some take the preacher's hand, say a prayer, get in some water, and then that's it. He's not interested in that. He's in your life for the whole bit. Look at what he says. When you return, strengthen your brothers. Did Peter's faith fail? Was it disintegrated? Did he strengthen his brothers? Well, look at the Bible in front of you. Is there such a book called First and Second Peter? Of course Peter came back. Of course Peter's faith didn't fail. You know why Peter's faith didn't fail? It wasn't because he had the power to keep it. You know why his faith didn't fail? Because Jesus prayed for him. And beyond that, you remember one of my favorite stories in John 21, when Jesus comes and finds Peter again. He finds him and Jesus is fishing. It's after the resurrection. Peter and the rest of them, they're on going back to fishing. And then Peter sees Jesus and Jesus comes to Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. How many times did Jesus give Peter an opportunity to confess him? Three times. Who was the first one to preach Jesus ever in the world as crucified, resurrected, and life-giving? It was Peter. Did he strengthen his brothers? Yes. Is he strengthening his brothers? Even though he's dead, he's still speaking today. Listen, God's power protects us from unbelief, which is the source of all sin. You and I have to respond to this power. We have to yield to this power. We have to submit to this power. Understand this though. Our faith is always a response to His power. Our power doesn't come first. Our faith doesn't come first. His power comes first. And then we just merely respond to it. And understanding this causes you to have confidence in God and not in yourself, which is the whole point of faith alone. It's not so much us holding on to Him as it is Him holding on to us. The knowledge that He has us in the palm of our hands and that He'll never let us go. You know what that does for us? It causes us to cling tighter to this God who has a firm grip on us. And here's the truth. Remember who Peter's writing to? Elect exiles. We need this confidence because the world is filled with things that make our faith fail. Filled with things that try to knock against our faith and cause our faith to fail. And one of the major occasions for our faith to have a failure is trials and tribulations. But trials and tribulations for the faithful, they have the opposite purpose. What men may intend for evil, God can intend for good. The good of trials is the strengthening of our faith, which leads us to our second truth that I want us to learn from faith alone. And that is, faith in God continues. So the source of faith is God. And in this faith, if it's genuine faith, it continues. Old preacher used to say, and I think that he's right, faith that fizzles had a flaw from the first. That's pretty good, isn't it? I wish I'd have thought of that. Faith that fizzles has a flaw from the first. Look at verse 7. Faith that is not tested has no substance. Peter goes into talking about trials. Do you see that in verse 7? The testing of our faith 
provides an opportunity to display what it is we believe. If you squeeze a grape, what comes out of a grape? Grape juice, right? If you squeeze an orange, what comes out of an orange? Orange juice comes out. What happens when you squeeze a Christian? Glory comes out. That's what comes out. I know we all wish it were another way, but it just isn't. This is the way of God. This faith that we're called to is not some one-time thing. It's not come to church on Sunday and live like the world on Monday, that kind of faith. It's not even this kind of faith that walks an aisle, prays a prayer, and sees no difference in your life afterwards. That faith is not any kind of faith at all. It's, it's make-believe. It's pretend. It's masquerading about as if it were real, but it's not. The kind of faith that walks through a trial and says, even though He slay me, still I'm going to trust Him. You know what that is? That's faith. That's the kind of faith that says, I'd rather have Jesus than anything in this world. That's faith. This kind of faith that God calls us to is not some passive faith. It's preserving faith. It means that even though everything around you tells you to quit, you keep going. This kind of faith starts and never stops. There's an old Japanese proverb that used to say this, fall down seven times, get up eight. That's faith. That's perseverance. This faith that God is calling us to is a faith that we must exercise. It's the faith that we must live. James says it a different way. He says, don't just talk about how full of faith you are. You show me how full of faith you are. The whole life of a believer is a a life of faith. It's a life of, of trusting what God says. That's what we are. We are those people who have faith. And what does it mean? It means that we trust what God says. Well, how do you know if you're trusting what God says? Do you live like you trust what God says? Could another person look at your life and say, Hey, this person, they really trust God. It's going to mean that their business gets shut down. But they trust in God. It's going to mean that they may lose their job. But golly, they sure are trusting God. And the opinions of the Christian are increasingly becoming unpopular. But I just want us this morning just to consider the source. How are you going to live your life? Based upon the opinions of man or upon thus saith the Lord? How are you going to live, believer? One way is a way of life. The other way is no living at all. The other way is a way of death. Just as an example, we live in a society, as Owen Strachan pointed out, Listen to what he said, that eulogizes Hugh Hefner, enables Harvey Weinstein, and eviscerates Mike Pence. Whose opinion do we really care about? We are those people as Christians who are peculiar people, and we have this particular confession. Why do we have opinions about the rights of the unborn? Why do we have opinions about the definition of marriage? Why do we say that certain behaviors are understood to be immoral and unacceptable? And why on the list? Why do we believe what we believe, even though it's countercultural, even though it may cost us? Why do we believe all of this? Here's the reason. We are people of faith. And we trust God. That's it. This trust is not just trust with our lips. It's with our minds, but with every part of us. And this kind of faith that God calls us to is genuine faith. Look at verse 7 again. Do you see that phrase in your Bible? The tested Genuineness. Suffering is a way that our faith is tested. Suffering is a major theme of the Bible. You read the Bible and you'll see people suffering. You can't escape suffering if you read the Bible. Because it's through suffering that God prepares for us an eternal 
weight of glory. It's through suffering that the present sufferings are nothing compared to what awaits the faithful. Listen, your faith will be tested. It may be necessary for you and I to encounter various trials so that we can have an eternal perspective. Now, some may think, and they may look at that, and they may run the other direction. They may think, well, Christianity, you know, suffering, that's just, you're talking about this, you're just talking to everybody. Christianity is just a faith for the weak. It's just for the weak people, weak-minded, weak everything. Karl Marx, of course, the founder of communism, he said that religion is the opioid for the masses. What did he mean by that? Religion is just something to inoculate, to weaken the weak and strengthen the strong. Maybe they're right. Maybe Christianity is for the weak. Because is there anyone stronger than death? It's appointed for a man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Maybe Christianity is for the weak. Because no one can escape death. Oh, but there was one person, wasn't there? There was one person, Christ alone, who conquered death and by His life. And so we love Him. Look at verses 8 and 9. And this is so good. I wish I could preach a whole sermon just on verses 8 and 9. And maybe I will one day. This is the third point from verse 8 and 9. What do we mean by faith? Here's, here's what we mean by faith. The outcome of our faith is salvation of our souls. Now that sounds pretty good to me. That our faith has a direction. It has a source. It has a continuance. And it has a direction. It has a past. It has a present. And it has a future. Do you see that? Your faith has a future. The outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. Let me say this to you. Look at verse 8 and 9. If you have faith in yourself, you cannot have faith in the Son without faith in Jesus No one will see God. We must stop looking at our own achievements, looking at our own merits, and instead have faith in God. Be like the Apostle Paul said, whatever I achieved, I count as rubbish compared to the glory of knowing Christ. You see, here's the formula this morning. It's real simple, real simple. Have faith in God and be saved. Trust anything else, anything else, then you'll stay lost. So I wonder today if you're living by faith. I wonder today if what Peter says in verse 8 and 9 is really true of you. Let's read it together. Look at what it says. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, You believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you have the expectation of verse 9? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, salvation, according to Scripture, is through Christ alone, by grace alone. Alone, through faith alone. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Sear it to our hearts. Let faith arise so that we may trust in you. With every head bowed and every eyes closed,
Is there anything hindering you from coming to this God who has come so far to save you? Anything? You say, well, I, I need to clean up my life first. Faith alone. Well, He'll never accept me. Faith alone. Well, maybe I'll, I'll come after I, I try it out to see if I can really live this life as a Christian. Faith alone. Nothing is stopping you from coming to Him. Flee from all self-sufficiency and trust in Christ alone. Through grace alone. By faith alone. We love you, our God, in Christ's name. Amen. We pray God will use this message for His glory in your life. If you would like more information, please feel free to contact us at info at OxfordBaptistChurch.com. Oxford Baptist Church is located in Oxford, Georgia. If you're close, we'd love to meet you.